Will you have another one? No, 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 no. I'll get this round. You get the next one. Right. Okay, don't tell any good stories until I get back. I'm sure you might have heard about the bar. It starts with the bar downstairs, which is just incredible. It was the hub because of the bar. And that's true, because that's where everybody went after shows. Everybody in Vancouver, after every show from the Arts Club, the Playhouse, the Queen Elizabeth, whatever, would go to that bar. It was the green room. It was like the official green room, uh, unofficial green room of of the Vancouver Theatre. The thing about this was it was just, you had, you had to be a member of the Arts Club. Well, I think that cost all of a dollar or something like that, and then you remember you could come in. Um, but you had to sort of sign in at the door. And uh, have, it just, I, I turned 21 in that bar, and I remember that birthday party really well. So, yeah, I, I mean, it was a really strong community. Everybody knew everybody else. Um, you know, it was a real gathering place. You know, it was it was the 70s, so a lot of it was about sex, but uh, it was also about, um, you know, what would, what would not have been called networking back then. It had all sorts of nooks and crannies that you could go into and do all sorts of illegal things. Because, because you knew, even if you were on your own, you were lonely, but you knew if you went to the arts club at 10 o'clock at night or 11.30 at night, you would know someone. In fact, you would probably know a lot of people. It was really just rubbing shoulders with um, people who had made Vancouver their home or who had grown up in Vancouver. There'd be the Arts Club Junior Choir, which consisted of the Wright sisters and Brent Carver. So and all, Brent and Susan Wright and Norman Browning and myself and a bunch of people would just hang out and play the piano. It's real old time singing. They'd sing whatever pop songs they knew, and everybody'd sit around, not paying any attention to these brilliant talents. Give us the key to lock up. We would lock up at two in the morning or something like that and go home. Um, it just it, it was such an incredible feeling of camaraderie amongst artists. There's probably a lot of it was probably pretty unhealthy because it was a lot of drinking, and there was drugs out the back always. You could always, you know, go um, smoke a joint out the back, and I think there was a fair amount of cocaine back there too. You know, it was '70s, wild and kind of free, and um, yeah. But that arts club bar, boy, it was the the beating heart of the theater community. And there was a lot of creative energy and a lot of creative excitement too. There were a lot of times where two actors would go at each other or a director would go at each other and drinks were thrown and and it got all really dramatic and then it'd be closing time. <laughs> Where artists can all just meet and there's not the pressure of public or anything like that. They're just, they can be themselves. It's quite a place. Now, what have I absolutely forgotten to ask you about? Oh, you, you weren't very interested about people snorting coke at the back of it. <laughs> 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 All right, people. Catherine, I want names. No, no, I never I snorted coke back there. I didn't smoke. I didn't snort coke. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding you. But it was a wild and woolly time, I'll tell you. The Arts Club Bar at Seymour Street in the 70s and early 80s. Thank you, director and educator Catherine Shaw, designers Ken McDonald and Marcia Sibthorpe, and historian Jerry Wasserman for your recollections. Now, I can't help but feel that we don't really have these sorts of spaces anymore in our big cities. You know, that one place where all the artists meet and shoot the shit and talk too loud and talk out their dreams and complain about the audience and muster up the courage to ask that person out. You know, the one they've been crushing on forever. Or fight for that part. You know, the one they've been dying to play forever. Or meet a fan, or a critic, or a young artist new to the city trying to figure out how to survive in this often ridiculous theater world. I think of theater-minded people, too, not just artists. Once upon a time, board member Joan Pittman shared this. There was this big, huge gala party at 
the Seymour Street uh, Theater, and I took a new boyfriend, my second date with this guy, and um, it was one of those wonderful evenings. We had a fabulous, um, wonderful um, date, and he's now my husband. So it's more than a bar. It's a place where you find your people. This makes me think of all the dying gay clubs all across the country. How The Roost in Edmonton, my first gay bar and now long gone, was even in the 90s a place where you signed in upon arrival. Members only. I mean, you just needed an ID and a bit of cash and you were in, but it it felt like a private club. And you could share a space with people like you. The allure and possibility of community and connection. Longtime arts club playwright Morris Panich told me this when I interviewed him. I can't even remember the source of this, so forgive me, it's just random. But if there was, um, I was reading about why there was so much creativity in Athens in the, in the, you know, 300, 400, 300 AD, uh, BC rather, or whatever they call it now, BE, and BC, whatever. And um, there was so much creativity in London when there were only, when the population of London was only. I don't know, 250,000 or whatever. The size of a city, it isn't the size of a population, it's just the atmosphere in which it exists. And I think there was some some kind of atmosphere that existed in Vancouver at that time. This episode is about land and city, family and business, and how all those things interconnect. How the Arts Club's fate would become initially grounded in one man's vision for the future, informed by where he came from and the direction he wanted to move in. Or maybe it's about how the Arts Club's fate had to do with the mountains and the sea. Or maybe how it all had to do with a Belgian master of the modern chanson and an expat from the Jim Crow era southern states. Let's see what we find. Like I said last time, this series is not a eulogy. It's not a legacy project or a promotional piece. It's not the careful work of a historian or journalist. And it's not a walk down memory lane either. I'm Andrew Kushner, and this is something else. Let's play the theme song. City. I'm a bit curious about uh, the walled city. That's that's sort of my launch here. I'm curious to know if you could speak oh, to... Oh, uh, you mean where I grew up? Well, the walled city really referred to the cannery itself. And that's where my, uh, my father, my uncle, and my grandfather uh, ran the uh, great... This is my cannery. very first conversation with Bill Millard. Please forgive that momentary crackling sound. It's not you, it's me. And I'm asking him about his origin story. I find that when you direct a play, there's a lot of value in reading up on the playwright's biography. I don't think you should touch the glass menagerie without learning something about Tennessee Williams. And I figure after 46 years with Bill at the helm as artistic director, the Arts Club was bound to have some relationship to where he as a person came from. I had happened upon a documentary called Through the Gate, The Great Northern Cannery Story by a fellow by the name of Gary Prendergast. Here's a taste. Not far from Lighthouse Park, and just east of Cypress Creek in West Vancouver, is the setting of our story. It is a former fishing ground of Coast Salish peoples, This land would eventually become the site of a major cannery at the turn of the century. As reported in an archaeological overview assessment conducted by Inlelawatash, a First Nations company, the Squamish fishing village that used to be there was called Stuckale, which is said to mean terribly bad smell, or in some translations, expelling human gas. I feel profoundly curious about digging deeper here, 
but consciously turn us to the settler history pertaining to Bill's family. The cannery was more than a factory. It was a community. A community of workers and a community of players. I was a player. Gary is referring to his boyhood and the friends he had who lived inside this commune. The Great Northern Cannery was this whole complex devoted to getting fish into cans, but there was so much more to it. It had residences and a store and a cafeteria, and in the center of it was the manager's house. As one former employee put it in Gary's documentary, Oh, wow. (laughs) This is how the rich people live. (laughs) Bill's cousin in the documentary, her name is Suze, follows with this reflection. You know, I look back at the pictures now and think that it was, it was sort of a dynasty. We were the privileged ones. But it wasn't always thus. Francis Millard, Bill's grandfather, lands in St. John's, New Brunswick, from Ireland in 1908. According to Bill's brother Frank, Francis had $35 in his pocket and, quote, classified himself as an entrepreneur. Tell me if I've got this right. Story goes, he came to Canada from Ireland with 35 bucks in his pocket. Uh, That (laughs) may be apocryphal. Okay, Bill says it's apocryphal, maybe. So the 35 bucks, debatable. But after working as a clerk for another canning company, Bill's grandfather Francis has this brainwave. Why not introduce a floating cannery to British Columbia? Why not create a cannery that could be towed from ground to ground in order to can the freshest fish? He made his vision a reality, towed this mobile cannery up to what were then called the Queen Charlotte Islands, now Haida Gwaii. Francis was eventually charged by the government for not having the license to pull the idea off and nearly went bust defending himself in court. But... Francis eventually wins the case. He was scrappy from the sounds of it. A dogged entrepreneur. He was innovative in in the ways he approached um, uh, the use of various various fish, like dogfish. He was convinced that dogfish uh, was edible, uh, despite its name, and again, he was eventually proven to be correct. He, yeah, he, uh, he was always looking for new ways to, to do things, uh, but at the same time, understanding that, uh, you know, you had to move on. You had, you had to continually um, improve your product. Uh, to, you know, it was a business. Bill said his grandfather had a crusty matter-of-factness, but that his grandmother, who didn't like living at the cannery, softened his edges. I mean, he was quite a character. Uh, when I was um, graduating from UBC, we were driving to um, the campus for the graduation, and I started telling him about my idea for the cannery, that tourists would come and look at the cannery in operation, which was quite fascinating. We would have a restaurant, and even then I was interested in theater, uh, and I said maybe there would be some kind of production uh, associated with, um, uh, you know, the the canning of fish or the catching of fish or whatever. Uh, He uh, absolutely uh, scotched the idea. I mean, of course, it was a fantasy on my part. Uh, And said that tourists were the parasites of society. I asked Bill if he found this ironic, that such an innovative and enterprising immigrant was shooting down a comparable spirit in his grandson. Bill didn't see it that way. Bill thought his grandfather was just being pragmatic. Parasite tourists visit downtowns. They don't visit work villages in West Van. Bill, as a young person, worked at the cannery as a clerk, and also alongside the women on the line, the majority of whom were indigenous and Japanese. He worked at what I mistakenly call the litter. Is it a litter? Would that be litting? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I ran the uh, lid lid machine. Lid. Litter. I've never heard it called litter. Uh, Yeah, the lid machine. Yes, that was one of my primary jobs. 
uh, I think it's of course affected my hearing because it was pounding all day long. Uh, you know, and of course in those days we didn't wear we didn't wear headsets or anything to muffle the noise. But Bill wasn't destined to stay in the family business. In fact, Bill's dad, concerned about the declining stocks through overfishing, was discouraging his sons from it. Bill also tells me his father was clocking the difficulty of spawning and other issues, ones that indigenous peoples in the region had been observing for some time, though, of course, Western science had resisted acknowledging those concerns. Salmon numbers were really being impacted by environmental changes. I think he recognized uh, climate change before anybody knew to call it that, uh, Mm -hmm. because he could tell uh, through the fisher people out there uh, what was going on. And so Bill was free to pursue interests elsewhere. Bill's dad did the same. He ran in a provincial election as a liberal, and Bill joined him on the campaign trail. It's interesting to observe, certainly now that you're asking me these questions. My grandfather was, was uh, you know, as I say, a dynamic leader, uh, very, uh, very, in some ways, oppressive, uh, very demanding. And I remember my mother saying, you know, that my dad was determined to get from, you know, under my grandfather's uh, gaze, as it were, and to prove himself. Uh, And he certainly did that. But yes, my dad was quite... um, And, you know, growing up, uh, I had no time for him. I thought, you know, he ignored me for the most part because the favorite son was my older brother. And um, didn't, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel he understood what I wanted to do or what I was interested in. You know, he was not terribly supportive. Um, Bill doesn't shift his perspective until his teens, when he sees his dad in action at the cannery, and then later, when his dad ran for office in the province. Bill saw the respect his father had for all these people working for him. He taught me a lot about how to respect people that work with you. Bill's dad didn't win the election. But Bill's upbringing and these varying moments of distance and closeness with his family feel relevant to me. I float the theory by Bill's partner, Marsha. I get curious about Bill's upbringing at the cannery. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, what it meant to be part of a kind of village workplace. I guess I get curious about whether or not inadvertently or with design, Bill replicated some of that. That's a good one. He's very close to his blood family, his family family, still to this day. Um, Maybe by osmosis, that kind of community. Bill's very aware of his weaknesses and he also is very aware of his strengths, but in his weaknesses with his family, his theater family, I think he and the people around him gathered because they could fill fill in that part of the family quite well. That ability to gather people who make the whole stronger. And that could well be from growing up in that environment. What do you perceive as Bill's strengths? Oh, he's such a dreamer. And and those dreams, he's made a lot of them come true. Bill gets a degree in political science from UBC, and he does a little bit of theater at the university along the way, and eventually ends up in Tokyo. I think that's where he directs his first show. I asked if I could put on a play and they said oh of course and I said in English of course they demanded and I said oh yeah and I picked uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf which of course had had in 65 was you know everybody's uh, favorite play to try and understand. He then goes to London sees piles of good theatre including Laurier on stage no big deal And then he gets back home to Vancouver and rather by fluke ends up enrolling in the stage management program at the newly founded National Theatre School in Montreal. 
In the first year, actually, I quit a number of times because I found it. Uh, I mean, they were right. I was older. These were high school students. I felt what I was learning was, was you know, I wasn't learning anything, basically, because I knew about backstage, uh, having done a couple of plays at UBC, um, uh, you know, anyway. Out of school, a season-long contract brings him back home to stage manage at the Vancouver Playhouse. In 1969, he works on grass and wild strawberries. Know it well. Hippies, hippies, hippies. You felt you were in some kind of the leading edge, as it were, that you were part of the counterculture, uh, and that really that the rest of society just had to catch up and, uh, and join us. And, and I suppose that's why, in a way, I dismissed the Arts Club, because the Arts Club was considered... Um, you know, after Yvonne Ferkins died, it, it was really, you know, just a, just a, a meal of, of uh, situation comedies. But in need of some work in the off-season, he started to pitch a couple of shows to the arts club's then-trustee, Douglas Perkins. Side note, Doug was a diehard for the arts club in those early years. I don't think he ever acted, but I'll bet you he was a walk-on. This is longtime patron Robert Bennett referring to Doug. They needed a body. On stage, it was Perkins. They did a lot of British murder mysteries, you see, so sometimes you had a, a body lying on the stage. Douglas Perkins was among the company's primary stewards. Remember that Yvonne Perkins had passed away in 1964, and so for several years, the theatre didn't really have any artistic guidance. Bill saw potential in the place and space, and through a few modest hits and a few notable misses that he directed, he came around to proposing a full season of work. The trustees went for it. I had never had a formal contract. I'd never signed anything. And um, I sort of set my salary in, you know, similar to the salaries of other staff members. And, um, but I never had a contract. Uh, I mean, I had an agreement, obviously, with the board to just keep going. So, uh, so they could literally fire me with no notice. But eventually the board decided <laughs> that we better have a contract with this guy. That was into the late 90s that they finally contracted Bill, officially. A mere 25 years or so into his directorship. But the notion of 25 years wasn't even an inkling in the early 70s, when Bill was trying to get bums into seats and to make something more of the arts club space. He thought the Vancouver audience Yvonne Ferkins wanted to educate had already graduated, but the light programming wasn't keeping up. As Scott McRae reported in The Sun, quote, Millard chafes under comedy's restrictions. Bill was dreaming of something more, and he was in need of a defining moment. He needed an event, capital E event, big time. It was the only way to secure the company and his own future with it. Act Two. The land is a teacher. In 1995, S. Disturber Christopher Defoe wrote in a Globe and Mail article, quote, Morris Panitch, actor, director, and playwright, winner of the 1994 Governor General's Award for Drama, calls Vancouver, quote, a bimbo of a city, vain and stupid. I emailed Morris about this quote, and he stands by it but says that it's in the context of when he lived in Vancouver in the 90s. He tells me he was, quote, mostly talking about how self-reflective Vancouver was as a city, like a narcissist, end quote. Later in the same article, Defoe talks about a cultural complacency in the city, largely attributable to the government and also the business elite's position on the arts. I have my own theory. I know it's not original. Like Donna Wong said in the last episode, nothing's new. It's just newly realized given the context or problem you're in. And so it didn't take long for me to find a technical term for this thing I was turning over. Geographical determinism. Very fancy, I know. 
geographical determinism, which basically means your environment predisposes the nature of your society. Is theater in Vancouver at odds with its environment? Or a product of it? How are they related? Vancouver is a very beautiful city with a lot of options for people. Um, mm-hmm. How do you get them indoors, right? Yeah. That's Saminovich award-winning director Kim Collier of Vancouver's Electric Company. What is the thing that, well, you know, that, that brings you to uh, a new place, a turn of the crystal as an audience member? And, and, you know, you've probably already heard people talk about the, the competing forces of Vancouver, the beautiful beaches, the mountains, the outdoor wreck, the sailing, the, um, just the, all the other kinds of ways that you can meet the human experience and uh, have catharsis and nourishment. And um, so in Vancouver, it just felt like in order to reach audiences, um, you needed to bring a sense of something spectacular or event or um, something undeniable. This is Siminovich award-winning playwright Marcus Youssef. Hey, Vancouver, got enough Siminoviches? I think the theater... Um... It's like I, I almost feel like in a better a better answer to the question is that, that it's not really a theater town in the way that Toronto is or Montreal is certainly. Uh, it doesn't have the identification with New York that Toronto does. Um, it doesn't have the history, um, uh, and so it's not a, a hugely it's not a theater literate town. Like when you you know to non practitioners or people outside of the scene, when you say theater here, people go oh the arts club like that. And there's not a, you know outside of a relatively small. Um, milieu, there's not a lot of recognition of what anything else might be. How does that sit with you? I asked him about this notion that Vancouver isn't really a theater town. Well, I don't know. I don't really have an opinion about that. I think it's... I think uh, humans are... I think people are more individualistic in Vancouver. Back then, to be in Vancouver was to be a part. So separateness, but also the land as cathartic, surrounding you, awing you, and challenging you, making you small, daring you to be bigger. John Giuliani of Savage God thought that shock was the answer. In one of his many manifestos provided in show programs, he directly tackles the question of how do you shatter complacency? He writes, quote, Relevancy in the theater is complete emotional and intellectual involvement. In that order, relevancy in the theater is shock. The shock of new ideas, of sudden insights, and of shattered preconceptions. End quote. So, is the land making Vancouverites complacent? Does it make Vancouverites crave exciting interruptions? I really had no sense of there being any kind of cultural life out here, and wow, was I wrong. I was totally wrong. Rachel Deiter, former literary manager and dramaturg at the Arts Club. When I first moved here, I kind of felt like the mountains were almost claustrophobic, like they were a barrier between me and the rest of my life, which was out east. Uh, and then within five years of being here, that really changed, and they felt like uh, they were just like a great sort of kind of fabulous barrier in a sense. And, and I think creating that sense of a lab, like what you're saying, um, where it's really, there's an intense conversation going on. Between land and artists, and artists and audiences. And I think of the shows I've seen from Vancouver over the years, Onegin, The Overcoat, Tear the Curtain, how music and movement and big-hearted stories bring scale to the theatre. Something to answer back to those mountains with. I speak with Musqueam theater artist Huilamia Sparrow, and initially I'm like, I'm onto something, right? Geographical determinism, even in the kind of theater that Vancouverites make. Even the interior Salish, and when we have similar words for things, or even some of us with the same um, language but different dialect. You know, you have people that are, um, you know, 
closer to the mountains or more, you know, fiery and, you know, in hotter climates that like we do things and you say things differently, you know, like, like spa'af is the word for bear here. And I know further into the interior and forgive all those interior folk out there that may be listening if I say it poorly, but it's spa'af, you know, it's like, it's harder. It's a harder sound, just like the landscape, you know? It's like, it's it's hotter like the sun and it's rockier, you know? And here is Ba'ath. You can sound, it's slurpy. It sounds like seaweed. It sounds like soggy, wet sand. It sounds like the ocean. Like the language is in the land and the land is in the language. Does the same go with storytelling? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So I'm thinking I've got a really sound theory here, right? Land and theater inextricably linked, yeah. But of course, in my zeal, I'm kind of missing the point. In terms of uh, performance, I suppose like in the storytelling on the West Coast, there's something, something of the way the story is told, the story and the way it's told. Uh, that feels related to the environment. And I, I guess I'm curious to know if that resonates for you or if that feels like an imposed theory. Yeah, I mean, we can unpack that a little bit more and what you sort of think and feel and mean about all of that. I mean, for sure, I feel that um, connectedness. My father is a fisherman. We're all, you know, Musqueam folk, we're salmon Fisher people. And there's a lot of the stories that are salmon stories where they teach us how, you know, they teach us about how the salmon move and the times of the year and the different types of salmon. And we have a lot of transformation stories. You know, you could be half human and half salmon and that you can transform between one and the other. And that it it's the the medicine in that story is that we're interconnected where we all are all one on this planet right now and what we do to the salmon we do to ourselves if we harm the salmon we harm ourselves if we harm the salmon we're hurting our cousin or our sister or a brother and then we do harm to ourselves that they are a family So, nice try, Kushner. Good effort. But there's more than one way to be in relationship with the land. It's not about competing all the time. It's telling of the dramatist who's always sniffing out the conflict. It's telling that I would miss out on the ways that the land may, above all else, be a kind of teacher. Act three, alive and well. So I used to go and sing at the arts club when it was just starting out and make $15 a night, which was just big money in those days. Singer, songwriter, storyteller, and member of the Order of Canada, Anne Mortifee. I ended up opening for a lot of um, artists that were quite well known in those days. And that was a a real, real blessing for me because I don't know how people do it now, but we had, like I had weeks and weeks and weeks on these little stages where I learned how to be with people. I was just talking to Bill about the value of starting small. Yeah, it was really good. I I felt very excited about that because it was so small. So you could see the people, you could feel what they felt and you could learn, oh, that really worked, but that didn't. Why didn't that one work? So it was a wonderful slow development and a very personal one. So Anne Mortifee is one of the surviving members of what is likely the arts club's first big defining moment under Bill's leadership. You know how earlier in the podcast I was saying he needed a capital E event? Well, this is it. A show called Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and living in Paris. I do tend to, in interviews, bang on about Jacques Brel so much that, uh, you know, before, in in my latter years at the Arts Club, people were sick and tired of me talking about it. Uh, (laughs) But there was a time where 
the theater was really, you know, people were going from play to play. There was very little investment in the future. We had no grants at all. So you depended on the box office. So when a show like Jacques Brel came along that, you know, sold something like 40,000 tickets, uh, you know, that was, that was a lifesaver and, and definitely uh, changed the tra- trajectory of, of the theater completely. I've spoken to a lot of people about the 1972 Arts Club production of Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris, directed by Richard Azunian. It was something that performer and American expat Leon Bibb had the rights to, that Chinese-Canadian theatre impresario David Y.H. Louie was going to present, and that Bill opted to give a home to at Seymour Street, and wouldn't regret it for a second. This song cycle by the Belgian singer-songwriter Brel opened June 29, 1972, and ran for something like eight straight months. From what I've gathered, there were five factors to its mega-success. First factor, the space. And more to fee. Oh, it was a great room. And you didn't need a microphone. The stage was about half, oh, got a quarter of the size of my living room, you know? So everything was small and tucked close together. The people were small and tucked close. Created a tremendous intimacy. And it was exciting to be able to have your voice fill up the whole room with no effort. And here, once again, are historian Jerry Wasserman, director and educator Catherine Shaw, and designers Ken McDonald and Marcia Sibthorpe. It was intimate. And so it was, uh, you know, there was a definite um, relationship between the audience and and the stage that, uh, that you didn't feel elsewhere. And then you walk up these old wooden stairs to what was an old gospel hall, and it was literally just a wooden box. Because it was such a great house to play in. You know, it was a joy to direct a show in there. It was, uh, the actors loved it. It was just a great actor-audience interchange. There was lots of moments in that space that were similarly breathtaking. You know, there was just kind of nothing to beat it in this funky old building. And uh, you just go, wow, how did that happen? Even for us involved, knowing how it happened, it would at times take our breath away. That that worked. Second factor in the Jacques Brel mega-success, the music, which, as it turns out, is far too expensive to feature in this podcast. We looked into it, but we can sure as hell talk about it. It was so... We'd we'd taken people on such a journey. The words of Jacques Brel are so from being in a bullfight and and saying, look what we're doing to the animals, but forget about that. What about Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Like, you know, so he went all over into so many different things and being a tortured individual where you find yourself going crazy because of the madness of the world, which was carousel. And then you've gone through all of this and then you come out and the four of you just stand together and you sing If We Only Have Love. And it builds and it's so beautiful between the four voices. And people, tears streaming down their faces, holding each other's hands. You know, it, it brought out the very best in people. And people would go, oh yes. You could feel them going, yes, yes, love, in all this madness of being a human being, in all of the loneliness, in all of the anger, in all of the beauty, in all of the falling love and being betrayed, in all of that, yes, if we only have love. And you could feel it. It was just, people were just weeping, and especially in the Little Arts Club, you know, on Seymour Street, the first one, there's like 100 people there, 120 people. I, you're looking right into their faces and mm. they are sobbing with realization of what is possible 
I tell you, it was incredible, and very many a night by the end, I was in tears. Third factor, the performers. This is Robert Bennett. He spoke earlier in the episode. His late wife was an early board member at the Arts Club. The original one was the one that brought, it was the first where they picked, somehow they got together four or five people and they just did it right. That That's the answer. Made money, oh, I saw it maybe 30 or 40 times. The four performers, the original four performers, which included Leon, who was just an extraordinary, had an extraordinary voice and presence. Uh, Ad Mortifee, Leon Bibb, Anne Mortifee, Ruth Nickel, and Pat Rose. By all accounts, an exhilarating ensemble. So these four performers uh, took this material and the intimacy of the arts club itself uh, and, and made it... It was an extraordinary combination. Well, Leon and I were best friends for 40 years. When he was dying, I came in, back into town. I was with him every day. And uh, and then when I decided I would move back to Vancouver for a time, my sister said, what about Leon's apartment? And I said, he still has his apartment? I mean, he'd been in care for a year. And so I called him up, and I, or when I went there that night, he, I said, how do you feel if I took over your lease? He was thrilled. So I, you know, so the day I decided, I just walked. I, in fact, I'm sitting on his couch at the moment. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me about him? Oh, God. Leon was just fabulous. He grew up, you know, in the South. He went through Jim Crow. He really helped. He was a doorway into the Black culture for so many, and he knew so much about it. And then he put this fabulous thing together where he went to schools and uh, it really educated kids about the Black community here in Vancouver as well as elsewhere and would sing all all of the songs of his um, you know soul he moved here and then he got from uh, Mort Schumann who owned the rights and Eric Blau who owned the rights to Jacques Brel's life while living in Paris and he brought it to Vancouver and then he hired me so I was lucky Bill offers this memory. I came back when the cast had moved into uh, the space, the theater space, moved into Seymour Street, and they were doing a rehearsal. And I walked in, now this is late June, so it was uh, hot or warm. And so they had opened the back doors to the lane and I walked in through the, the doors, uh, the back doors, and Leon was singing on stage, Ports of Amsterdam. And I had never heard him sing before. And I just stopped in my tracks, as it were, listening to him sing. You know, so his voice was echoing, uh, you know, around the walls and from the ceiling. And um, I just thought if, if the show was anything like what I just heard, uh, yes, it would, be, uh, it would be something very special. Fourth factor in Brel being so magnifique. The historic moment that Vancouver found itself in, a city that was still emerging from the 1960s. The, the 60s had been really tumultuous and they've been tumultuous especially for the old well for all of us but for the older generation who thought that the culture was falling apart and didn't understand what their kids were doing like what are they like dressing like that and smoking dope and some of them are going to prison taking a stand and they're going to march on the streets against Vietnam and the world's in an uproar what the hell's going on and then this People went in and they got to see the passions of a man who was political and who did care and uh, who was outraged about a lot of it. And, and, but they saw it as beautiful, the caring and mm. the expression of the beauty of anguish or the beauty of, of commitment 
there was something that transpired and literally we had people grandmothers and grandfathers bringing their children grandchildren to come and see it when they were young uh, I, I remember one gal telling me that she and her mother had come together and they'd really been having difficulty and she said something broke and we went home and and we got I get choked up thinking about this because she said I was I, I just wanted to get away from my mother I went because I felt sorry for her because she was so upset and we went home and we talked all night about everything it it blasted them open that was the beauty of it it blasted people open and they w went whoa what was that Finally, fifth factor, the long run. This was very, very smart of Bill. If it's selling, keep it running. And Jacques Brel ran for months and months. It was an unmitigated hit. And what that meant is that thousands of Vancouverites now had a shared experience in the Seymour Street Theater, in Yvonne's attic, in Yvonne's dream and would be all the likelier to come back to it, to bring their friends to it, to make the trek to the slightly seedy part of town for a night at the theater. It was official. Vancouver had its off-Broadway-style playhouse. Family and business. Land and city. Oh, a huge amount was built. And the family. Huh. You know... There was a, unit, a unified group of people that all worked together for years and years and years, and they went up and down and up and down together. And Bill was, Bill was, <laughs> you, I'm sure you've heard lots of funny jokes about Bill's stinginess. I mean, he, he, you know, but he made, he kept us all working. Uh-huh. Because he was very, very careful, very careful. Building on the success of Jacques Brel with his particular style of programming, Bill manages to balloon his audience numbers over just a couple of years. The numbers are astonishing. The 1972-73 season has 371 subscribers. 73-74, he doubles that, 752 subscribers. In the 74-75 season, 1,288 subscribers, and by the end of the 70s, 5,123 subscribers. And yes, these are Arts Club patrons, but we have to imagine that Bill is nurturing a growing theatre-going public in Vancouver. Theatre-goers buying tickets at the arts and elsewhere. Now, Jacques Brel does play into a kind of legacy that Bill struggles with. It forged the theatre as a space and place, but it didn't necessarily dislodge that impression that the arts club was mostly devoted to highly digestible and crowd-pleasing fare. It may have even reinforced it. Malcolm writes about the arts club, this is in a, um, an article he had penned, a substantial one about, about Vancouver's theatre history. He said, Millard found what he called a middle audience who found the playhouse too formal and large-scale, and who were not much interested in experiments. How does that quote sit with you? That was just um, normal, critical kind of, you know, seizing on the obvious. Jacques Brel, which you want to call that middle of the road, fine. But uh, I think it's just an easy swipe, which has haunted... Um, probably haunted the arts club, certainly my career, uh, on, until, you know, we were able to eventually convince them that, uh, particularly when we got into premiering new work and, uh, you know, in the 80s. Would you rather we be doing plays that you consider uh, not middle of the road and then stop existing? Is that really what you're after? Uh, and of course they would say, no, 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 you know, we're just commenting on on what you know might seem obvious but to me it wasn't obvious at all and was just uh, uh, a lack of rigor to slight uh, the work in that way 
This is a businessman who wouldn't let his theatre go the way of the cannery that he grew up with, now gone a memory. This was a businessman bent on survival, and growth, and building things that stick around. Next time, I'll be looking at the fate of the Seymour Street Theatre, a space that doesn't get to stick around. We'll be talking about love and death, and a play that was anything but middle of the road. It was a... Quite explicit, a couple of the scenes. I did. I I just closed my eyes. The scenes still happen. Do you know the play? I hope you'll join me. This is something else. Is produced by the Arts Club Theatre. It's been written, directed, and hosted by yours truly, Andrew Kushner. My podcast assistant with research, dramaturgy, and EDI is Priti Daliwal. Sound design and editing by Kevin Galt. Original music by The Golden Age of Wrestling. And a special thank you to my guests in this episode, Ken McDonald, Jerry Wasserman, Catherine Shaw, Marsha Sibthorpe, Bill Millard, Morris Panich, Kim Collier, Rachel Deiter, Marcus Youssef, Quilamia Sparrow, and Anne Mortify. I'm Ashley Corcoran, Artistic Director of the Arts Club Theatre Company. And I'm Peter Cathy White, the Executive Director at the Arts Club. This is Something Else. Consciously Eclectic Histories of the Arts Club is generously supported by ITC Construction Group, BMO Financial Group, KPMG, BFL Canada, and longtime patron Lee Girls. We would also like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts, the BC Arts Council, and the City of Vancouver for their ongoing support. And of course, it goes without saying that not just this podcast, but every production created by the Arts Club requires collaboration and teamwork across our organization. From our development team that connects with our amazing donors and community partners, allowing us the opportunity to fund projects such as this, to our marketing and guest services departments that ensure our audiences are able to access the work, to our admin and finance department that supports all of our activities, and to our production department who learned a whole new way of creating great art in order to record and prepare these podcasts. To our artistic department, who welcomes and hosts the incredible freelance artists with whom we are so lucky to collaborate with, and to our education department that finds innovative ways to connect our audiences with the content we are creating. We are so grateful to work with the passionate, curious, and determined staff at the Arts Club. This is truly a collaborative effort that takes people and resources, and of course, the support from donors and subscribers, people like you. If you've liked what you've heard and are interested in supporting more new works and local artists at the Arts Club, please visit artsclub.com and consider making a tax-deductible gift.